the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We are right now living in a time that can be considered the golden age of entertainment. Really, if you're into TV or movies or even reading novels, there's little that you haven't seen or heard to some degree. So really, it has to be a very well-crafted story with a surprise or even a bizarre ending that can make the audience feel as if the victory belongs to the one who at the end of the movie dies. Much more difficult is the ability to move us to the point of agreement that it is in fact in his death that he has achieved victory. Perhaps that's what makes the death of Christ so intriguing. I mean, think about it. We are entertained and we want the hero to ride off into the sunset alive, not dead. He gets the girl, he finds the gold, whatever it may be. Not the one who suffers and dies, it's the bad guy that we want to suffer and die. And yet what we have seen in the passage we are continuing this morning is that Christ is the victor. And not only that, in His victory a.k.a. his death, we find comfort, we find encouragement, and even hope. The reason this is a hard pill to swallow in a Hollywood hero is because if someone is dead, he can't ride off into the sunset. He can't claim victory. He can't enjoy the, the spoils of his trials that we have gone through for the last two hours. To get the gold, to get the girl, to enjoy, it requires him to live, not die. And for that very reason, Christ's victory through his death actually makes all the sense in the world. Because the enemy is not a person who gets the treasure if Christ doesn't. Or will marry the heroine if Christ dies. No, the enemy is defeated by his death, thereby gaining the victory because the enemy is sin that incurs the wrath of God. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18-22 through 22, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. We began this passage last week by unpacking verse 18, which was the first of our four encouragements in suffering from Christ's victory. Because this continues a flow of thought in where Peter has been writing about various ways that individuals 
could and are at the time suffering for the sake of righteousness, that is, suffering for the sake of Christ or for living out their Christianity, whether it was wives or slaves at the time or whatever it may be, because he goes on and talks to all Christians who will be persecuted for their faith. We find this encouragement because Christ is the victor. At the end of chapter 3, we have already been told that we are to follow the example of Jesus Christ in His suffering, who was reviled but did not revile in return. Remember that? Who was beaten, who was yelled at, who was cursed at, and yet spoke not a word but kept silent as a lamb led to slaughter. And so we know that that point has been covered and this passage in chapter 3 verses 18 through 22 is not talking about an example we are to follow. We know that is true. We've already seen that. But it's to provide victory or rather a reminder of Christ's victory so that we will be encouraged, that we will find hope, that we will find confidence, we will find trust and any other word you want to put in there in the midst of our suffering and frankly in the midst of our day-to-day Christian life. And last week, the first encouragement in suffering from Christ's victory that we saw, we only saw the one, was Christ's victorious propitiation. Which, if you recall, is more than just forgiveness of sins. It comes in the language of the forgiveness and covering of sins, which averts the wrath of God. It is a transaction. His life for our sins. And thus, the wrath of God, which we earned by our sin, was placed on Christ and will not be placed upon us. And we unpacked verse 18 and we looked at the various aspects of what Christ did for us. We won't have time to unpack that. We'll go straight to our second encouragement in suffering from Christ's victory. This is fresh material. Number two, Christ's victorious proclamation. Christ's victorious proclamation. I want to read for you again verses 19 through 20. I'm reading from the NAS. On the heels of saying that he was made alive in the Spirit, it goes on to say, in which also, in the Spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. I mentioned last week that this is considered one of the hardest passages to interpret in the New Testament, and it is in part because of verse 19. Who are the spirits? What is the prison? Where did Jesus go? Well, let me unpack this for you. In his spirit... So this is a time in where in the flesh he is dead. His body at this time is in the tomb. Jesus, we are told, went and preached to some spirits in some sort of prison. Now these spirits now in prison refer to fallen angels that we are told also from verses 19 and 20 who were active during the time of Noah. Now these, we know this from verse 20 because it refers to these individuals as those who are disobedient during the time of God's patience when Noah constructed the ark. Now, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis 6 is part of the account of Noah and the great flood. And we read about these spirits in verses 1 through 4. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. 
If you're not familiar with your Bibles, just turn all the way to the front. It's the first book of the Bible after the index. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, says this. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. We have in this account a strange and unique situation in where these fallen angels, which we know by the term sons of God, came down to earth and had sexual relations with human women. And because of their disobedience, because of their evil, they are now imprisoned. In other words, we know that not all evil spirits or fallen angels are imprisoned. We know that one day all, including Satan, will be imprisoned. This is not hell. This is the same term, prison, that is used in Revelation 20 and verse 7, referring to Satan's 1,000-year confinement during the millennial reign of Christ, after which he is thrown into hell. So we know that this is not hell, but an imprisonment until the last days when Satan and his demons will be sent to the eternal lake of fire, which we read about in Revelation 20 and verse 10. In other words, you could say this is a preliminary place of incarceration. Now, the reason Jesus was able to do that is because last week in verse 18, we read about Jesus being dead in the flesh, but alive in the spirit. Remember, we talked about uh, the dichotomy of the of any individual, us included, uh, but here talking about Jesus, where you have basically uh, the the human temporal part and you have the soul or the spirit. His flesh was murdered on the cross. His spirit still alive. Just as our spirits can never be killed, His spirit was not killed. He spirit from eternity past. And in the spirit, He went to wherever these, this prison is and proclaimed His victory. There are a lot of different views of this. And many of them are flat out heretical. Some people take this to mean he was preaching to the spirits of human beings and thus preaching the gospel and giving them a second chance, which contradicts the entirety of the Bible. There is no second chance. Some people believe this is talking about Jesus going in his spirit before he came on earth and and encompassing a human being. And it's talking about preaching to the humans through Peter, or excuse me, through Noah during the time of the construction of the ark, which the grammar just doesn't prove that fact, although theologically that would be the second most viable option. I believe that what he's talking about here in the context and with the reference to the Old Testament and in the the grammar of the terminology, well, you know what I believe and what I just told you. But the point is, he is not proclaiming the gospel in terms of giving 
those who have died a second chance to come back to earth or whatever and go to heaven. This imprisonment is not purgatory as some, as some people have, have wrongly to the, to the, really to the dishonor of God said that even exists. There is no second chance. There is no purgatory. This is Christ having died and going and saying, I did it. It is victorious. The people that you have tried to mislead, mislead and now you're in prison for, your brethren, the other fallen angels, your master, Satan, who are now trying to change people, it is finished. I am victorious. I have died for the sins of man. There is nothing you can do about that. And Peter goes on to refer to the infamous Noah and the ark. Now Noah preached repentance for years. And this is what's alluded to uh, both in Genesis 6 and 1 Peter and in 2 Peter as well. For years he preached repentance. And yet we know that nobody repented. Why do we know nobody repented? Because the original eight that were to be in the ark, at the end of over a hundred years of preaching righteousness, it was only the same eight that were in the ark. And the rest of humanity faced God's wrath. Now granted... Just by doing the math, the uh, population of the earth was less than it is today. But eight people in all of humanity still says something pretty amazing about the wickedness of man and the righteousness and wrath of God. Because that same verse tells us, that God didn't spare the ancient world. Think about that. I mean, you, you see that kind of terminology elsewhere later on in the Old Testament. And it refers to a certain nation. It refers to a certain people. It refers to maybe just one family. He didn't spare this family. He didn't spare this individual and his wicked sons. He didn't spare the entirety of the ancient world world. You want to know why Christ's victory was so great? Because of the grossness and the seriousness of sin. How serious is it? He didn't spare the entire world. The eight were Noah and his wife, their three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. So Noah, his wife, his sons, and three daughters-in-law. Like Noah, Peter's audience originally, when he wrote First Peter, is a small persecuted minority in the midst of a majority that is disobedient to God and refuses to repent. In his second epistle, Peter refers to Noah, and this is where we know that Peter was, or excuse me, Noah was preaching the entire time. He refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2.5. So this tells us, along with the Genesis record, that the entire time he was building the ark with the knowledge of God's impending wrath, he was not selfish, he did not fear man, he did not keep quiet, but he was warning, he was preaching, and then he was warning again. All the while, people were mocking and laughing, what in the world are you doing building this boat in the middle of dry land? 
Noah was preaching repentance because he knew God's wrath was coming. As a side note, you too today know God's wrath is coming. You have no excuse. You have no reason. What we've been unpacking for weeks. You have no reason to fear man. You have no reason to keep quiet. It is silly. In your redeemed state, it is illogical. It dishonors God. And it sentences others that you know to death. You must, like Noah, preach righteousness. You fear man, you're not even building a giant boat saying God is going to flood the whole earth. Now that would have been ridiculous. If I was there, I would have been like... Uh huh. Right. And go back to my drinking and carousing, as they said the people were doing in Noah's day. It is different now. It is hidden. These are sins that we all once partook in, as we'll see uh, when we get to chapter four of First Peter. But it's the same thing. It may not be as stark. It may not be as blatant as a as a flood. But you know God's wrath is coming. So, like Noah, preach. Righteousness now, today, and always. And again, Genesis tells us that it was 120 years that Peter was constructing the ark. I, I can't imagine doing anything repetitively in this fashion for 120 days, let alone 120 years, knowing that he was going to kill everyone. These weren't just enemies. These weren't just people he didn't like. These were distant relatives. These were friends. These were kids that he grew up with. These were people that he would see and he would think about that trouble they got into as kids and those fun jokes that they've shared for the last 100, 200 years. This was not easy for him to do. He was preaching. He was begging. He was pleading for 120 years and nobody repented. And as the world is experienced today, in those days, Peter says... God was patiently waiting. When the patience of God kept waiting, he writes. The ESV says, when God's patience waited. He was patient. We know today he is patient way longer than 120 years. Patience is a Hebrew term that means slow to anger. And the word waiting speaks of not just waiting out the time, but earnestly and eagerly waiting with expectancy. And in all of this time, the people, the people He created, the people who knew Him, were provoking, provoking Him with the rebellion, provoking Him with unrighteousness and sin and godless lifestyles. God could have easily cut them off right away. Do you know how later on Noah gets two of every animal onto the ark so quickly? How did he round them up? How did he get them? How did he corral them? Because God did it. God got them on the ark. God could have easily built the ark for him. God could have easily given him plans to make something just in a few days and then just miraculously kept that boat from sinking. And he could have said, not 120 days, or 20 years rather, but I will no longer strive with man 
And in 12 hours, a boat will appear and the animals will come and I will flood the earth. But God was patient. And God allowed Noah to preach repentance for 120 years. You ever wondered why? Why so long? Why 120 years? Well, in part, the answer is here. God was giving people a chance to repent. Why hasn't Christ come already? Why isn't He here? I know as believers, to some degree, hopefully to a greater degree, we desire Christ to come again. We want to be with Him. But you want to know why He hasn't come already? Because He is patient. And my friends, no matter how hard your life is, long for Christ to come, but don't be impatient because He could have easily come before you were saved. Praise God for His patience and His waiting and His long-suffering. They didn't repent. And the ark fulfilled its purpose, which was to save the righteous, which ended up just being eight people. Today, however, the ark continues on as a picture, a symbol of salvation and security. Ultimately, the point is that Christ proclaimed the victory attained through His death. And Peter brings up the point about being brought safely through the water as a lead-in to baptism, which he speaks about in the next verse and our next encouragement in suffering from Christ's victory Number three, Christ's victorious people. Christ's victorious people. Verse 21 again says this. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, corresponding to the waters through which Noah was saved... Peter points to the believer's baptism. And just as Noah and his family escaped the wrath of God in the ark, despite the disobedience of the world that surrounded him, so the waters of baptism save us. Say, oh, hold on a minute. Did he just preach baptismal regeneration? Did he just preach that the waters of baptism save us? No, I did not. I said the waters of baptism save us in the same way that Noah was saved by the ark. The ark did not save him spiritually, but was a representation of his salvation and the fact that he belonged to God. Just like physical baptism does today. In fact, Peter goes on uh, to make it clear that he's not saying that the ritual of baptism saves, because that is merely, if you look at verse 21, the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, you take away the symbolism of it all. Baptism is just a glorified bath. And what he's talking about when he says that baptism saves you is that baptism is a representation of what is inside. And he says what is inside is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now what in the world does that mean? Let's break it down again. The word appeal is a pledge. 
a declaration of commitment. The NIV translates this phrase as a pledge of a good conscience, fair to the Greek. The word was a technical term that they would use when making contracts. You understand that? I pledge to give you this much a month, and the bank gives me this much to pay for the house. It's a contract. It's a commitment. You will do this for that. And the idea here is an agreement to specific conditions or demands. Now, for the Christian, the pledge we make is an assent to certain conditions, such as a profession of faith in Christ, a willingness to obey and fulfill new duties that now belong to you because you are a Christian. Or to put it simply, your pledge is simply to follow Christ, to be a Christian. Now, there are certain conditions within the sovereignty of God, of course, that we make before we are put in Christ, namely repentance and faith. And this results in a good conscience because of the forgiveness of sins. A good conscience is not just an intellectual understanding of what practical righteousness looks like, but it is a deep down characterization. A good conscience is the kind of moral disposition or attitude of the man who is aware of his duties before God. It is purity of heart. So if you will, there is an objective and there is a subjective good conscience. Last week I was talking about, I think it was last week, about a subjective good conscience, meaning a conscience that can be seared. Your conscience is only clean to the degree that you obey God. We also have an objective good conscience, which is because you are redeemed in Christ, your conscience is clear no matter what, you are considered pure before God. And this is the pledge. We see this. And this is a place, I know it's confusing, because yes, we fully trust in the sovereignty of God, but before you get all theological on me, you understand too that there are plenty of commands in the New Testament that indicate that we have a responsibility to do certain things. And yes, faith is a gift, but repent and be baptized, we are commanded. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, we are commanded. And so this is the pledge that we make, and in return, we receive a good conscience. So to tie this all together, what saves an unbeliever who by nature in his sin has an unclean conscience before God, is to get in the ark of salvation, which for us is Jesus Christ, and pledge your life to Him. Now that is all an appositional phrase. In other words, it can be in parentheses. And Peter brings us back to his main thought with the phrase at the end of verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you understand, remember that? Back to grade school grammar, what an apposition is. It's two things that are referring to the same thing, two two descriptions of the same thing. So he could have written it this way, verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Christ. That baptism is not a removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal for a good conscience. But the point here is we're reminded that it's in His sacrifice that Christ was victorious over sin, but it was in His resurrection that the whole of salvation rests. Because in baptism, we can only ask God through our pledge to Him for a clean conscience, a.k.a. salvation, on the basis of the resurrection of Christ. Why? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is is in vain. 
Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Why is this? Why? If Christ has not been raised, why is our faith worthless? Why are we believing and living in vain as a joke? Because, and this fits perfectly with our, our theme of victory, without the resurrection, there's no true victory. There's no victory over sin. There's no victory over death. If Christ was buried and remained in the tomb, and by now, 2,000 years ago, would just be dust or bones or whatever it may be, it will be proof, in fact, that He was not God and definitely is not God. And He was not sinless and He was not the perfect sacrifice. And all the death did was prove that the Jews were right, that He was some sort of crazy man making false claims for which He should have died. But He was resurrected. So you understand, without the resurrection, we are still in our sin, as I just read from Paul. If there was no resurrection, there would be proof that His death in fact, was not propitiation for our sins and the appeasement of God's wrath. Maybe for His sins. And in fact, if there was no resurrection, we could look back and say, that wasn't God's wrath on Him at all. That was just His just due for the false claims against Caesar He made, and He should have been crucified according to Roman law. But, He was raised from the dead. And we know that in that He proves that He was, is, forever will be God, that He died for our sins, propitiation has taken place, justified, righteous, sanctified, all of that good stuff, because He is alive. We don't look to a Joseph Smith who is dead. We don't look to a Muhammad who is dead. We don't look to a Buddha who is dead. We don't look to a Mary, despite claims, who is dead. We look to a living God who was raised, was raised from the dead. Now I understand that when you first read this verse it might have confused you. I understand that some of you are probably more confused now. But all of that stuff that we read and I unpacked for you the resurrection, the good conscience, the pledge, all that. But let's not lose the main point amongst all these theological details. Go back to the beginning of the verse where Peter says, Baptism now saves you. And frankly, I don't care how much you love theology. You should have been so blown away by the you as the object of God's love and Christ's propitiation that everything else was just a blur. Praise be to God. Because the point, dear friends, is that in Christ's victory, you are His victorious people. Look, I like understanding and explaining difficult passages and intricate theologies. It is my passion. It is my job. But all of this, the definition of a pledge and a good conscience and who the Nephilim were and these evil spirits, all of this, the merits of water baptism, it is all worthless if you don't focus on that tiny but infinitely important word, you. 
this was all for you. You are saved. He died for you. He resurrected for you. He is victorious for you. He proclaimed victory for you. We are His people. We are God's victorious people. We're talking about suffering. Specifically, persecution for the faith. I shared a week or two ago of a group of Christians whose tongues had to be clamped because they were singing and proclaiming God's praises as they were led from their prison cells to where they would either be burnt alive or drowned if they were women. These are people who you could just see in those few minutes and say, wow, those people are victorious. Take that, Hollywood. They're dying, but they're victorious. We look victorious in our jobs. We pursue looking victorious in our reputations and how much people like us and whatever it may be. We strive for victory in family. We tinkle with, or tinker with, not tinkle, with tinker. We play in our prayers with begging God. But we know it's wrong, but we want to ask for victory in finances. A job in the Bay Area. A house in the Bay Area. Retirement at 40 or 50. Enough money to buy that dream car. Might not buy the car, because again, you want to look victorious in front of other Christians and not look worldly. But at least I have and I know I could buy that car. This is how we live. You may get that, you may not. But you know with worldly things it's never enough, especially with money. But why do that? Why live your whole life seeking what the world considers victory, knowing that you probably won't get it when you can live your life not trying to achieve victory, but living boldly in Christ based on the victory that you already have. You are God's victorious people. And if I can be very practical with you, what do you mean victory and reputation? What's well, either or? If you're afraid of what people will say at work or in your family, and so you don't preach the gospel, you are seeking victory in the eyes of man in terms of your reputation over living your victory out for Christ. Fill in the blank. Whatever it may be. Stingy with your money. No people in the church or friends are, are hurting financially, but you want to keep it because you want to have a house and you want to go on those vacations. You know where I'm going. You know what you're seeking victory in versus relying and living out boldly and sacrificially the victory you already have in Christ. And pour more to the point, in suffering, how do you live? Do you keep quiet? Would you sing praises? Or would you beg for your life? Tell me whatever I have to say. You want me to deny Christ? I will deny Christ. You want me to stop going to church? I will stop going to church. 
And you say, no, never. I would never deny Christ. But you can't even share the Gospel at work. You are denying Christ. Don't you get it? You are denying Christ. And yet the trophy has already been placed in your hand by your suffering Savior. You are God's victorious people. Let's live like it. It shouldn't be if, how, why, muster up the strength. Just live that way. Live beyond the things of the world. Be a good steward. Take care of your body. Take care of your family. Take care of your retirement. All those things. But don't let that be your idol. Don't let that be what you live for. The other day, she doesn't know I'm going to do this and she probably wouldn't want me to. The other day, my wife was sharing the gospel with someone who only spoke Spanish. So she was typing things in with Google Translate to share the gospel with this, this lady who, who only spoke a few words of English. Do you know why she took the effort to use Google Translate to translate her English words into Spanish for the gospel? I just told you because the lady didn't speak Spanish, didn't speak English. My point is she didn't do it because she felt convicted. She didn't do it because the lady said, do you go to church? Tell me about God. She didn't do it because she liked the lady, that they were good friends. She didn't do it because the lady was about to die. She didn't do it because she'd been praying for this lady for years and finally mustered up the strength to do it. It should be as simple as that. I'm doing it because, well, she doesn't speak English, so i got to use Google Translate. Do you see what I'm saying? We, we default to, well, she must have done that because it was this person and she's seen her many times and maybe this and that. No. She just didn't speak English. That's why she did it. If she spoke English, she would have done it in English. You don't need to find a reason to share the gospel. And understand that your victory in Christ is not just about evangelism. It's about how you live. It's how you, you don't go back and, and try to re-enslave yourself in sin because of the pleasures that it brings. It's also living in a way where you're, you're not fearing man so much that you, you, you can't even stand in line at a store or you can't even speak up to your boss when he does something wrong or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what man think about evangelism or your reputation or your, or your job because you have victory in Christ. It, it impacts every moment of every day. It impacts whether you complain or not about the food on the table in front of you. It impacts whether you're, you're angry at other people all the time, whether you give them the benefit of the doubt, whether you love sacrificially. It impacts when someone texts you a neutral phrase and you assume the worst or you assume the best. Your victory in Christ has changed who you are. You are God's victorious people. And yet we walk around living like we're in last place. Friends, Christ's victory gives us confidence and encouragement. And oh, by the way, speaking of the resurrection, let's take a look at our fourth point. Christ's victorious power. 
We saw last week his victorious propitiation, this morning his victorious proclamation and his victorious people, fourth and finally Christ's victorious power. Verse 22, Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Without the resurrection, this wouldn't be happening, of course. And it's happening right now, you understand, as we speak. This wasn't just for a day or for just a few days after his ascension. It is for eternity. He is at the right hand of the throne of the Father, even as we speak. The right hand of of God, that, that phrase right hand is used, as we know, of God the Father, but it's used in other places. It's, it's uh, historically uh, simply a place of equality and power. Right? Where does the next in line for the, for the king sit? If it's a queen, she's at his right hand. If it's a prince, she's on the left, and the prince is on the right hand. It is a symbolic place of equality and power. And we see this principle all over the New Testament, from Jesus in the Gospel speaking of Himself to the Apostles in Acts preaching that Christ who you killed is now at the right hand of the throne of God. It's found several times in Hebrews extolling our great high priest. Again, differentiating between the human high priests in the Old Testament and Jesus Christ, our eternal great high priest. And Peter goes on to say that He is there because He has gone into heaven. And in that place, and in that position, Jesus is over all angels, all authorities, and all powers. Those three words simply designate different ranks of spiritual beings. Contextually, Peter is emphasizing Christ's authority and power over all the evil spirits and all the fallen angels. Of course, this also implies, and elsewhere in Scripture we know this to be true, it also implies that he has power over all, including the good angels, all, including humans, animals, whatever it may be. But what he emphasizes, that he had been given, that all of these powers, all of these legions and ranks of demons and evil spirits and fallen angels had been subjected to him, this finds a truth and a comfort and encouragement in our suffering for Christ because the greatest of the persecutors, you could say the source of human persecution, the demons, have been conquered. He is victorious over them. They have been subjected. You, you see persecution for, you know, you see things and you say, that's evil. That's wicked. That is sinful. You see people doing those same evil, wicked, sinful things to Christians who have done no wrong except for being a Christian. You say, that's demonic. That persecution comes straight from the pit of hell. But Christ is still victorious. In fact, it's past tense, Peter says. They have been subjected to Him. We trust and understand God's sovereignty. He allows evil in the world. He is patient with sin. Bad things happen. We understand that. But understand that even Satan himself, and Satan knows this, has lost. He knows where he's going. Try as he might. Fight as he will. 
Christ is victorious. He has been beaten. And so four encouragements in suffering from Christ's victory. His propitiation. He has died for your sins and averted God's wrath. His proclamation, even to the imprisoned evil spirits, He has proclaimed victory. His victorious people, you, and His victorious power, specifically, over the spiritual evils that exist. Look, it's not easy to suffer in any way. In many ways, practically speaking, it's harder to suffer for Christ because you know that He is good. And you know that if you suffer for Christ, you're suffering for doing something that's actually good and right and moral. It's not that you're suffering for committing a crime. You're suffering for doing the right thing. And what's more, in our sin, we realize that it'd be much easier to keep quiet and the suffering would stop, at least for that. Nobody will persecute you for something that, as far as they're concerned, doesn't exist, your faith. But when you understand what we've looked at over these past few weeks... We're given hope. We're given confidence. We're given endurance in our persecution. I'm not saying that physically and emotionally it's going to hurt less. In fact, frankly, the more bold you are, the more it's going to hurt because probably the more it's going to happen. But we understand that Christ is victorious. We understand there's nothing they can do to us. We understand that there is reward. We understand that this is part and parcel of all the blessings that we have now and the greater blessing we will have one day. And we understand that it is better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. And this is just going back to the the past few weeks and past few verses. I mean, really, you want suffering at least in your mind and in your spirit, to be easier, how much more proof do you need than His propitiation, His proclamation to the demons, the salvation of His people, you, and power over all things, especially in that moment, those who persecute you. And the point of all of this, the victory of Christ, is that in your suffering in the midst of that name-calling, of that beating, of those threats, or whatever it may, whatever form it may take, you can actually rest easy, proclaim His praises even louder, because whatever game that these people think they're in, whatever competition they may think they are in, whatever challenge they may find in demoralizing or trying to demoralize or hurt Christians, the reality is you, because Christ, have already won. Game, set, match. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we understand the reality that though we fear persecution and though persecution is difficult, The victory is already ours, not because of how great we are, but because of what you have done. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our temptation to avoid being bold with the gospel because we are afraid of persecution, I just pray that we would rest and rejoice in your victory, 
I pray that it would not just be an intellectual understanding, but an intellectual understanding that overflows into joy and expectation, hope and trust. Father, again, we are reminded of your infinite wisdom in that in all of these potentially discouraging passages that call us to suffer well and to suffer for our faith and not speak up, not retaliate, we're so thankful that in that wisdom we are reminded of what really ties it all together, that you are victorious. A reminder not only that we are your people, but we are your victorious people. A reminder that you are not a a limping, bloodless, weak Savior somewhere, but you have been resurrected. You are victorious. You are alive and well. Power over all things at the right hand of the throne of the Father. God, very God, sovereign, loving, patient. And Lord, though you know it was not my original intention, by your Holy Spirit you prompted me to speak on evangelism and so I pray for that too. That we would be a people who are bold, not to check off a list, not primarily just because we don't want loved ones to suffer in this life or in the next, but because we want to proclaim your victory. Because we want to live like your victorious people. Because we want to glorify you through obedience and glorify you through the salvation of more individuals. Thank you that you've given us this privilege to live this way in a time of your patience. We long to see you face to face. And until that day, be it through death or return, I pray that you would help us to live as the kind of people not praising ourselves, not finding confidence in our own merit but understanding that we are victorious because the head of our body is victorious. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.